The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Sarah Eisen with Carl Quintanilla live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, former IMF Managing Director uh, John Lipsky joins us now at NBER on why the Fed will be slow to cut and his reaction to this week's strong data. Then, is the EV revolution already starting to lose its charge? The B of A economist behind that call is with us this hour. Later, can today's debut spark a return to form for the IPO market? Former Nasdaq CEO Bob Greifeld joins us to weigh in. Meanwhile, uh, while we were watching some other stuff, all-time highs here uh, intraday on the S&P 4906. Uh, that's, uh, of course, following five straight record closes. Uh, we'll watch that as a lot of uh, things are working today, including some financials, Amex and Capital One, uh, even Visa to, to a lesser degree helping out on that front. Yeah, I'm watching Treasury yields as well because the 10-year note yield is a little bit elevated, certainly from where we started the year and where we started the week, 414, despite the fact that the inflation numbers continue to come in sort of benign. Uh, we got that PCE number, 2.6% year-over-year inflation growth, core 2.9%. Investors are bracing for another week of big data and big events. We've got the Fed rate decision, consumer confidence, the jobs report, add to that earnings from Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, and much more. What will be the biggest drivers? Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator. Mike Santoli, how are you preparing for next week? <laughs> I mean, the stakes are pretty high. And what I observe in the market is that there's at least an awareness of upside risk as well, right? You're not seeing urgency to sell the highs in the S&P 500, even though arguably a relatively messy start to earnings season. Um, not so much that, you know, big bellwethers are failing on the earnings, but that there's been a little bit of a muted guidance. And you could make the case that the macroeconomic numbers aren't fully reflected in a lot of the earnings reports of cyclical companies. I mean, I'm not saying it's something to worry about, but you could make that case. But the market's not seizing on that right now. I think it is because the burden of proof is so high on somebody says, on somebody who says, you know, we don't have a soft landing because all the numbers are, are moving in that direction. Um, you mentioned Treasury yields. I don't know. We still have room until I think we get to the worry phase of four and a quarter above on the 10 year and just stacking up all the things we know about the Fed's posture based on what they've told us. It's hard to come up with, an, uh, you know, with they're not going to look for an opportunity to ease pretty soon. Meantime, oil's uh, set for its best week since October. This will be yeah. uh, two winning weeks. We got some fr news of fresh attacks on the USS Kearney by uh, the Houthis, we believe. That said, yeah. I mean, there's more discussion about an undershoot if, if rent starts to play along here in the coming on months. On inflation, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I think that's what has everybody very confident about directionally where we're headed on inflation. Um, like we, you know, we're at 4,900. You're up 20% in three months on the S&P. Let's think about that for a second. And so, therefore, one of these 3% wobbles can come out of nowhere. But next week is really when the drivers of S&P earnings show up. 
and that's that is the big you know the big seven whatever you want to call it the big nasdaq stocks are not just the better performers in the market they're the ones that are driving the overall earnings picture so that's going to determine uh, whether we can justify valuation and, and their capex guidance i imagine just yeah all of right. it right yeah. i mean the, the, the economic heft of those companies uh combined with the seasonal stuff and you know if we get into february it gets a little choppier uh you have new you know year year ahead money coming into the market right now but right now you know i just i'm looking for cracks in how the market's behaving and you're not really seeing a lot just yet well keep us posted on All that right. as always mike santoli those economic indicators telling a pretty good story today jobless claims yesterday rose a bit but still remain historically low durable goods orders flatlining but on the plus side gdp beating estimates by 130 basis points and this morning saw beats on consumer spending and core pce coming down so what will the data mean for the Fed as it gets set to meet next week? Joining us now is NBER director, former deputy IMF first managing director, John Lipsky. It's good to have you, John. I mean, I remember having you on last week saying, are you guys going to say this is a recession? Is this going to be a recession? Is this going to be a recession? I guess it's a good thing that you, that you never came out and did because who would have thought we would have seen these kind of numbers right now? Absolutely. The, con- the conventional wisdom certainly was that there was going to be a recession. There were there were reasons for thinking that, but the uh, that has res- that kind of interpretation was trying to apply a standard analysis to what the pandemic, which was a completely unique situation. Uh, right now, it, the, there's no obvious sign that for a recession in sight. There are risks, but I would say at the current time, the risks are more po- politics and geopolitics than economics. How how do you think about the geopolitical risk on the economy? Is it high? Well, first of all, one of the surprises and surprise for the surprise for most economists and certainly for the Fed is that at a very low unemployment rate, you've seen continued solid job growth, but declining inflation. That that's not a conventional outcome. Uh, So it's taking them some time to to think about this. But going forward, things are going to certainly likely to slow. And the question is, can they continue to see this uh, solid job growth and declining inflation at a very low unemployment rate without producing price pressures or signs of a corporate cutback in, uh, in expansion? John, given all that, uh, we just mentioned rent, a median new rents down eight straight months. Uh, we're looking for signs that maybe uh, hiring trends are, are, are moderating to a degree where there's more discussion of an undershoot, uh, at least on, on PCE. Are you on the watch for that? Oh, yes, uh, certainly. Well, I don't know about an undershoot relative to uh, uh, good forecasts, but the, it's been recognized for some time of the lag in the housing component in the price indexes that suggests we're going to continue to get good news on on overall price indexes. The question is, will we continue to see favorable news on uh, core measures excluding housing that will give the Fed comfort and investors comfort that inflation really is coming down? And the old argument that the last mile between two and three percent is going to be very sticky is going to turn out to be as wrong as the earlier pessimism about the prospects for declining inflation without rising unemployment. Right. Atlanta Fed took a crack at that a couple of weeks ago. I think they did a paper, I think, that said, is the last mile more arduous? And their general take was was no. Do you agree? 
I do. It's not, I've never quite understood why that last bit is going to be so much harder. When after all, for most of the decade before the pandemic, uh, prices undershot the Fed target. Uh, so it's not as if the Fed has some fine-tuning ability with regard to the economy and inflation. And the, the economy was less inflationary before the pandemic than the Fed had wanted. In fact, Fed policy was really geared toward trying to get inflation up, not the other way around. Yeah, anyway, remember? They changed their framework. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. And uh, which is why they virtually had guaranteed us that they were going to be late to the party in hiking rates. And the good old Fed, they always keep their word. <laughs> now, it seems to me that the uh, they've pretty much guaranteed in their approach, which still clings to a Phillips curve kind of conceptualization, that they're going to be late to start. But there's no doubt that their policy today is restrictive. They recognize that. And the question is, in the current environment, how long does that make sense to be maintaining a restrictive monetary policy? Yeah, and I think the question on, on jobs and how long the strength can continue, we are seeing sort of layoffs here and there, um, certainly in the tech sector. I think Salesforce, the latest, it's, it's hundreds, not thousands or anything. And it, it does feel like it's in a way to pivot around prioritization of AI unless because of the economy. But belt tightening mode, margin preservation, I mean, these are big themes right now in corporate America. And I wonder, John, how long you expect the labor market to remain so strong? Well, I suspect that there is going to be a slowdown in both the, the uh, uh, corporate investment and corporate hiring in the coming year. It's going to produce a slowdown in job growth, and that's going to make the judgment on the economy uh, a bit trickier. But for sure, or I should say, the, all the signs point to slower growth than in the past year, but it doesn't, there, there's no clear sign of imbalances that would lead you to expect recession. Hey, finally, John, on that layoff front, uh, a lot of companies are restructuring workforces using AI productivity as an excuse or a push. On the other hand, uh, a lot of people argue that the early experimentation in AI means you still have to correct the things it gets wrong. I wonder where you are on the notion that it's going to bring us a new wave of long-term productivity. Hard to know in the short run. Uh, it's easy to think that the, the experts who see big effects from AI in terms of productivity, uh, hopefully are correct. Some of those are pessimistic about jobs, but it seems to me that in the long run, the history of a market economy is improving productivity, ultimately expands both wages and employment. John Lipsky, always good to get your thoughts. Thank you for weighing in from the NBA. Thanks, NBR. always happy to be here. Thanks. Sticking with next week's uh, Fed decision, our next guest does expect 100 basis points of cuts this year, beginning in June, watching for some opportunities emerging in emerging markets, small caps, and the S&P outside of the MAG7. Joining us here at Post 9 today, Lazard, Chief Market Strategist Ron Temple is back. Ron, it's great to have you. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, it does sound like you think the Fed is going to tell us we need sustained evidence that this thing right. is for real. Right. And I, I actually lean now to more, more towards a May 1st reduction. Um, and the data today even arguably puts March a little more back in play. But, you know, given what John Lipsky was just saying, I do agree. The Fed was late to start fighting inflation. The last thing they want to be is too early in terms of pulling off the brakes. And so I think May is the most likely case. 
that gives them a couple more indications of inflation, labor market reports, um, and just the confidence to know that that's the right time to start. But if I look at the PCE deflator this morning, the last six months are below 2% on a core basis. So this is what Jay Powell told us to watch is the six months, look at three months, we're at 1.5% core PCE. So the direction looks good. Yeah, I mean, they're at target if you look at those kind yeah. of numbers. I guess the question is, is, and I brought this up earlier, what the path they're going on looks like. Where, where are they headed with an economy that's doing very well in the face of higher interest rates? How much will they have to lower? Well, I think that's where it gets a little more controversial. I'm thinking 100 basis points this year and maybe 100 basis points next year. But I'm assuming the trough of this easing cycle is maybe around 3%, 3, 3.5. And I do think the Fed wants to have that dry powder. If you think back a long time ago, pre-GFC, this was the normal level, was kind of bounding between 3 and 6 in different cycles. And I do think, by the way, that inflation will probably be a little bit higher over the next 5 to 10 years because some of those structural dynamics that held it down before the pandemic are basically going to be shifting more towards the dynamics around the energy transition and the cost of that, and also changes in global supply chains, which will nudge up that inflationary pressure. So I think the Fed's going to be keeping rates a little bit higher than the market might anticipate. Speaking of that, does any of the Red Sea or the, the supply chain, does that keep them on guard in other ways that they wouldn't be otherwise? I think really when you look at the shipping cost, it's such a small part of the cost of goods sold. Just within the core PCE, goods are only 26% of the weight of the index. It's really the service sector they're going to be watching. And core goods prices have been going down consistently. You see it in the CPI, you see it in the PCE. I think we've got another 6 to 12 months of core goods prices going down. So we've actually got deflation there. So I don't think that's going to end up moving the needle very much. And Christine Lagarde said basically the same thing at the ECB meeting this week. So as far as equities go, you are looking for a broadening. You're not, not that you're shorting large cap tech, right? Right. How broad can this get? And where would, where would others, where would people search for first? Well, the way I'm thinking about it is we've had a huge run in the Magnificent Seven. And by the way, next week will be really interesting. We got five of the seven reporting earnings. But the only way that momentum can be sustained is if the other companies in the market who are buying the products from these seven companies find that they increase productivity and increase profitability. And back to your prior line of questioning with John, I do think there's a case to be made that this will be a bumpy road. Um, we have to figure out how to use AI in the workplace. All of the workers, me included, have to figure out how to use it in our day-to-day -day life and how to make it improve our efficiency. I think that's gonna take some time. And so the broadening out, we'll have to wait and see. Do companies get the benefits? And oh, by the way, in the interim, we've got a good economic backdrop. So. You know, the seven companies in tech are not the only companies that are going to grow earnings this year. And I think that's the bigger story of 2024 is macro being de-emphasized and the micro company specific increasing in importance. Although the, the outlooks from the companies have not been as rosy as you might think, given some of the economic data. Kind of a mixed picture there. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I do think growth will be slower in 2024 than it was in 2023. But let's acknowledge 2023 was really good. I mean, I and a lot of people expected that recession risk was high. We were wrong. The economy is in a very good place. We should expect some deceleration. Finally, the debate we keep having is about sideline cash, right? And how much equities benefit from whatever uh, allocation changes people make to their cash. Is that, do you believe in that? I do believe that should add a positive leg to the story. Earnings growth should be good. Economic growth is good. Valuations of the broad market, the equal weighted S&P, are below 17 times, so not stretched. And then add on to that well over $6 trillion of cash and money market funds. Is all of that going to go into equities? No. 
But some of that probably will move back in. And we're having a lot more conversations with people thinking, maybe I need to figure out what to do with that cash because 5% is going to go to 4 and go to 3 Really quickly, since you're at Lazard, I mean, what, what are you guys expecting for capital markets activity this year, given the very benign backdrop you just laid out? I think this is a backdrop that is good for fundraising, whether it be equity capital markets or debt capital markets. Credit spreads are very narrow, so if you need to issue debt, you've got lower rates than we had not too long ago, tight credit spreads. On the equity side, it's a market that's a lot more hospitable to new issues, so I think you're going to see activity there. If you think about M&A drivers, a lot of this comes down to confidence and visibility. Visibility around the economy, you know, check. Visibility on rates, check largely. It's really just a debate of how quickly and how soon. And then valuations. So. And regulation. Yeah. And, and I do think, by the way, again, a number of the investment banks have talked publicly about seeing positive alignment of these factors. It looks like an improving environment. Ron, thanks as always. Good to see you again. Thank you very much. Ron Temple. When we come back, is the EV transition already starting to lose its charge? Tesla's uninspiring results could be a turning point. The economist behind that call joins us on the other side of the break. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. We are watching shares of Snap today. Deutsche Bank upgrading the stock to a buy this morning. Nearly doubles its price target from $10 to 19 the firm is bullish on incremental revenue from its Snapchat Plus feature, Snap's partnership with Amazon, and also a rebuilt ad platform that is seeing contributions from China. Snap ended 2023 up 89%. Shares are up today about a percent. Meantime, the electric vehicle market in the U.S. does seem like it's losing some charge. Redburn Atlantic's EV demand model estimating earlier this week the market will be oversupplied by more than a million vehicles through 25, even after manufacturers like GM and Ford announced their slower rollouts. Tesla, of course, did warn during its lackluster earnings report that vehicle volume growth, quote, may be notably lower than last year's rate. And then there's Hertz announcing earlier this month it's selling about 20,000 EVs as demand has waned. Our next guest is a little more optimistic noting that hybrid loan originations are up and could help bridge the gap as EV affordability improves. Joining us today via Bay Institute senior economist David Tinsley is with us. David, it's good to have you with us. You know, J.D. Power is out today. They did say the first three weeks of the year have started slowly for EV retail share. Uh, but talk about what you're seeing in some of these loan originations. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we use the 69 million Bank of America customers to dive into some of these issues at Bank of America Institute. And when we look at loan originations on autos, in particular for new cars, what we've seen is that electric, the electric vehicle share, it rose pretty steadily to about the middle of uh, 2023, and then it started to flatten off. And what's really interesting, I think, is when you look at this by generation, so you look at uh, baby boomers, Gen X, 
uh, millennials, there's a real difference uh, opening up. So the millennials, the younger gens, that share's continuing to rise and is an uh, um, order of magnitude higher. The older generations, they seem to be developing some hesitancy and, and the share is easing back. Do we know why? Well, there's a couple of reasons, uh, we think, uh, and our autos expert at B of A Global Research, John Murphy, has revised down his forecasts for the, uh, the overall penetration of EV vehicles out to 2030. I mean, some of these reasons are, you know, they're kind of familiar. Uh, range anxiety, the mm. bad rap that EVs are, uh, are getting with those pictures of uh, people stranded in the cold. And probably most fundamentally is uh, the choice and the affordability of EVs for the average uh, mass market consumer. So John's team looked at the 62 EVs on sale in the US right now, 62 models of EVs. Only about 20 or so had a sticker price below 45K. So, you know, for a lot of people, that just puts them out of reach. So the premium end of the market, fine. But really, it's not until 2025 that the, some of these capex investments and model rollouts will start to uh, bring more uh, affordable EVs online, I think. I have an anecdotal reason why. So we had an, we had an EV for several years in New York City and just treated it in recently because we were able to save money. Because the only reason we needed to have a garage in New York City was to charge the car. And without that, we can park on the street and save the you know, $700 <laughs> a month that you have to pay for a New York City garage. That was a huge savings, actually. So the whole infrastructure and, and, and convenience thing, I think, factors in. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at the charging infrastructure across the state, it's still very, there's a lot of disparities. So California, you know, that's fine. Other states, much less so. So the rollout is clearly weighing on people's minds. And as you say, you know, your ability to charge at home and maybe any costs incurred from doing so are factors in all of this. I mean, I think as you were saying at the start, the good news from this, particularly if you're worried about the emissions, et cetera, is that we're, we're seeing hybrid originations rising in our data, hybrid loan originations. And your plug-in hybrid has about 30% of carbon dioxide emissions of a regular gas car, gasoline car. So, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you can skin this cat to net zero in a number of ways. And as long as there's a mass market adoption of hybrid, that's not so bad in terms of the trajectory. Have you done much work thinking about how much the United States uh, might one day depend on Chinese imports or whether that's even politically possible? Well, that's not a question that we've put uh, in, in this work. And of course, loan originations only see with the, the models that are available now. Uh, but I think it, it comes back to affordability ultimately. So everybody uh, imports and the domestic market needs to produce these more affordable EVs in order for that penetration rate to continue to rise. David, pretty fascinating. Uh, it's a tough market to read. Uh, that adoption curve is really long. Uh, we'll do our best with your help. Uh, good to see you. David Tinsley, Bank of America Institute. Thank you. Coming up, is the luxury consumer back? Results from the parent company of Christian Dior and Bulgari may provide an answer. Our story abroad and the European close coming up right after a quick break.
Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. European markets adding to their post-ECB gains, with the stock 600 hitting the highest level since January 2022. The luxury sector also giving the market a jolt here on the back of strong earnings. LVMH rallying as fourth quarter sales beat expectations, also raising its dividend. Going into the report, investors were concerned about sales specifically in the China region, but the company's CFO said they were, quote, not particularly concerned about China. French drinks maker Remy Cointreau also jumping on a smaller than expected drop in sales. The stock's really bouncing back in a big way. And speaking of bouncing back, in China, the central bank unveiling broad plans to guide money into sectors of national importance to boost the economy. Bank of America noting today that Chinese equities saw the largest inflows since July 15th, the second highest ever, of course, coming about off the backdrop of a lot of outflows and negativity. Clearly, the Chinese authorities, the government, Beijing, has determined that they want to instill some confidence here into the markets and into the economy. A lot of, a lot of pieces this week on the tape about the political vulnerability, even of President Xi, and then the sort of drubbing that these retail investors have taken on these so-called snowball trades, mm -hmm. where you it's a derivative bet, where you're betting the index will not go up or down that much, and they've that's, it's hurt them. That's right. I think it shows that if there's if there's a will, there's a way. If they have the resolve, then they have the firepower to help fight it. Uh, although, you know, some of the China bears worry that the problems run pretty deep as far as property concerns and debt problems and geopolitical risks and friend shoring and all of those sort of risks for the Chinese. And, and even the Red Sea now on these yeah. reports, they're asking the Iranians to help uh, help assist that situation because well, they rely so much rise. on exports. Yeah, yeah for exactly. sure. Meanwhile, uh, we're coming just slightly off of those all-time highs, 49.02. Let's get a news update this morning with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court. Hi there, Carl. U.S. Central Command said the Yemen-based Houthi rebels fired a missile toward naval destroyer USS Kearney today. The ship, which was traveling in the Gulf of Aden, shot down the missile, according to CENTCOM. Today's attack comes as the Iran-backed Houthi militants continue to carry out attacks on ships in the region in retaliation for Israel's offensive in Gaza. House Speaker Mike Johnson warned a Senate deal addressing border security and aid to Ukraine is dead on arrival in the House in its current form. A bipartisan group of senators reportedly plan to unveil the deal's text next week, but the Republican-led House has warned it won't approve anything that it doesn't feel goes far enough to address the southern border crisis. And the former Spanish soccer chief lost his appeal to remove a three-year ban from the soccer governing body FIFA. The decision came out one day after a judge ruled Luis Rubiales would have to stand trial for giving a player on the country's national team an unwanted kiss following Spain's World Cup win. Carl, back over to you. Court, thank you. KKR-backed healthcare company Brightspring making its public debut today. Many investors hope it will jumpstart a relatively muted IPO market. Former NASDAQ chief Bob Greifield will weigh in, weigh in next with his outlook. Stay with us.
Oppenheimer's pretty bullish on Coinbase today, upgrading the stock to outperform and citing the 30% plus sell-off it's seen in the stock to start the year as an attractive entry point. Oppenheimer also points to the Bitcoin ETF approvals as a positive catalyst for shares. Price target goes to 160, up almost 4% today. Let's turn now to the state of the IPO market with Birkenstock, Instacart, Kava, some of the high-profile companies that went public last year. So what should we expect in 2024? Today we got Brightspring, which did price below the range. And next week we'll get Amr Sports. That's the company behind brands like Wilson Tennis Rackets and Louisville Slugger. Joining us now with his outlook, Bob Greifield, former NASDAQ CEO and co-founder of Cornerstone Financial Tech Management. Bob, welcome back. Nice to see you. Good to be back. So what do we make of this? This was supposed to be a big comeback year. The market's hitting record high after record high. There's excitement about the Fed cutting rates and the economy having a soft landing or not even a landing right now. Why so sluggish on IPOs? Well, I don't believe we're going to stay that way. And I think NASDAQ has done a great job of coming up with this pulse index, which I've had time to study. And to simplify it, if you think about it from a common sense point of view, uh, a factor that matters is the market last year was up dramatically. The second factor is you see interest rates are going to come down uh, this year, which we'll talk about later. And the third factor is investor sentiment, which is actually in, uh, increasing. So if you take those three factors, that leads to a good score and it leads to higher IPO activity. Uh, and we've seen a higher score since 2021. So I predict a recovering market for IPOs in 2024. And obviously, the stronger the company that leads the IPO you know, onslaught, the better. And I always think back to how Google single-handedly changed the sentiment of IPOs back in the day. Mm. Well, while the market conditions might be right, Bob, the, the performance of recent IPOs is not particularly inspiring. With a lot of those that I mentioned, I mean, it's not like they got out of the gate and, and went went up. <laughs> well, Sarah, so I focus a lot on fintech this day, uh, fintech technology companies. What's interesting, and I think it's very important, is all fintech IPOs since 2019, the vast, and I should say all, the vast majority are now trading above their IPO price for the very first time. So what you're expressing has been very true in the certainly the fintech world, right? You have an IPO, it trades below the IPO price. It certainly will dampen the enthusiasm for subsequent companies to go public. But that's not the case in 24, right? The vast majority of these fintech companies are now above the IPO price, meaning the early stage investors who came in are now in the black, right? They might have underperformed the overall index, but still being in the black is a positive feeling. So I think that's also one of the catalysts you'll see, which will help the IPO market going forward. Any debate, Bob, about which part of the globe uh, is the most attractive on, in which to list? Is, our, is the U.S. far and ahead number one? Far and ahead, right? Far and ahead, number one. It is the deepest, most liquid capital market. It's also the market with the most informed investors who really uh, want to understand the investment story. Uh, so there's no close second like there was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It is the U.S. market, and NASDAQ has done a phenomenal job leading that effort. I do wonder about, you know, the, the so-called valuation overhang where these companies, these private companies got such high private market valuations in 2020, 2021, 2022, that the public market is just not going to give them. And whether that makes companies uh, yeah, apprehensive that, that, or, or even hard to afford going public. 
Well, I think that's one of the reasons we had the great stall in the market. You really had a Mexican standoff with respect to valuation. But you did see in 23 a number of large private companies do down rounds in valuation, even while they were doing well. So I think we've seen a general, as I watched in 23, we saw a convergence of public versus private markets. You still have some gap, but it's not near the gap that it was, you know, it's called 18, 24 months ago. So you're saying kind of taking your medicine before you come to market? Yeah. Yeah, that was surprising last year. We saw a number of private companies take medicine in subsequent funding rounds, which we hadn't witnessed in the years before that. Who do you see as a potential bellwether? I mean, we some of the names in the pipeline that we're watching, Sheehan, um, Skims, Kim Kardashian line. I mean, yes. there's a lot. Chobani, Panera. Which one are you excited about well, or most in, anticipating? In that's a great question. In the world that I focus on, it's interesting. Uh, you see Stripe, uh, Pitchfork has this great AI tool they pay a lot of attention to that ranks uh, the probability of a company coming public. And it's machine learning AI and it comes up with a various number of factors. And they have Stripe at a 97% chance of coming public this year. So we look in our world, Stripe is probably at the top of the list. You have Rippling and a number of other companies that are well positioned to come public. Hey, finally, I wonder if you think, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking back to the years where you had names come public, Bob, that literally sucked the oxygen out of the room. Uh, there yeah. was argument that it was going to hurt the rest of the market. From a marketing standpoint, it was big and splashy. Do you see a return to those days or is it going to be a, a more modest uh, coming out party? Uh, well, I think the answer is somewhere between the two. The larger IPOs tend to sucks the oxygen out of the room, but I still think that's good in that it gets more people in the room and it allows the subsequent companies to come into a more hospitable environment. Uh, so I think the market needs a hot bellwether name IPO to really ignite it going forward. Do you have to be profitable to go public right now in this higher it's interest helpful, rate world? Right? Yeah. We're still, you know, that, that's the last stage when the IPO market gets frothy where you don't need to see profit, but we're not in that stage right now. So profitability, I, I would say that's basically table stakes. You need to be there. And certainly if you have remarkably high growth, you can, you know, talk about less profitability as a balance. I like to look at the rule of 40 and things like that. Uh, but in this environment, profitability is key. All right, Bob, thank you very much for the insight. I appreciate the time. Thank Bob you. Greifield. Looking forward to a robust year <laughs> yes. on IPOs. Meanwhile, a four-year deal for $20 million, what was once a contract reserved for professional athletes, now being commanded by leading AI researchers. TechCheck's going to detail the incredible sums being offered by Altman, Musk, and others in a minute. A lot of titans in the tech industry making headlines today as they look to raise huge sums of capital to build their AI startups. Our Drew DeBose is watching that today on TechCheck. Hey, Dee. Hey, good morning, Carl. Let me name just a few of them. Elon Musk, Brett Taylor, Sam Altman. These are already the biggest names in tech, but they're not complacent running some of the biggest existing companies in the world. They want to build the next generation of gen AI companies. And it certainly helps that they have established proven track records because building AI companies, that is extremely expensive. The FT reports that Elon Musk is in talks to raise up to $6 billion to finance a challenger to the Microsoft OpenAI juggernaut. 
Brett Taylor, that's a former Salesforce CEO and OpenAI chairman. He's reportedly close to finalizing an $85 million investment for his startup called Sierra. And then there's Altman, of course. He may be chasing billions of dollars to build AI chips. Now, we've talked about the billions of dollars needed in compute power, and that is for building the actual models. Reporting from the information says that Anthropic's gross margin was between 50 and 55% in December, and that's actually far lower than the average gross margin for cloud software stocks. Talent is another massive expense. I was at a dinner last night with the CEOs of Databricks Box and Salesforce AI, one of them, Ali Godzi, he said that the going compensation package for a senior AI researcher is $20 million over four years. Hire five of them, that's $100 million like that. And then there's making the actual chips, arguably the most ambitious. NVIDIA and TSMC have put in years and tens of billions of dollars into research and development, while the mega caps like Google, Amazon, and others, they're still using NVIDIA GPUs despite their own in-house chip efforts, which are costing huge sums of money as well. But even if you're not building the foundational models or the semis to power them, and you're building AI applications like Brett Taylor is, there's a race to get scale. Clara Sheed, the Salesforce AI CEO, likened last year, last night at dinner, to AI in 1997 during the dot-com boom. She said she sees a lot of similarities over the last year. So that means winners are starting to emerge, even if we don't yet know who's going to be AltaVista or Google. And AltaVista or Yahoo, excuse me, and who is going to be Google. But clearly, you want to be in the latter camp. And that's what some of these tech titans are trying to do. I mean, I want to hear more about your dinner. Um, I'm intrigued. Because, of course, you're going to AI dinners with top AI executives in San Francisco. So what, what else did you pick That's up? That's what you do here. Yeah, yeah. What else did you pick up about where we're going this year and how fast we're moving? I mean, it was, it was such a fascinating dinner. I'm still trying to run through all of the information last night, but it was basically, you know, three of the top enterprise CEOs talking about what's ahead. And one thing was absolutely unmistakable is that they're moving all, all forward at as fast as they can. And, you know, Clara, who is the CEO of Salesforce AI, she says that they're looking at it in every part of the business. There's the AI division, but they're looking at it in marketing and sales and they're having hackathons and they're just trying to figure out how it can improve these different businesses that aren't necessarily AI focused but can benefit from those efficiencies. And just that price tag for a senior AI researcher, I knew that they were being paid large mm. sums of money, but I did not realize it was that much. And when you think about a Google that has thousands of them, right, on their workforce, that's just hundreds and hundreds and billions of dollars. Mm. On a day where B of A did you see that chart calling AI a baby bubble, along with Bitcoin and SPACs and memes? I mean, and... <laughs> that was also part of the discussion. And Ali Godzi, every time I talk to him, he says that, yes, we are in a bubble. And there's so many of these foundational models. The price is going to go down and some are going to be weeded out, right? So that's also part of the conversation. Everyone's trying to get there and figure out how they can use AI to improve their businesses. But there is also this idea of like, who's going to be left behind? Who's going to be the AltaVistas? Who's going to be the Google? And it's not clear that the incumbents that it's actually going to be Google or Microsoft. There's going to be some new players too. I think that mm. was also one of the takeaways. All right, Deirdre, thank you. It's really good, good color. Appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. It's been an ugly quarter for regional bank earnings so far as higher rates take a toll on profits. Did East West, East West, <laughs> East West Bank buck the trend? CFO is going to join us on the results next. 
taking a look at some names hitting all-time highs today. Meta, Raw Stores, Merck, Berkshire again, and TJX. We're back in two. Let's close out the hour with a look at East West Bank. Shares moving a little bit lower uh, here after the company reported Q4 earnings, delivering a beat on net interest income, raising the dividend 15%. Yet another regional bank marking a pretty strong close to 24 following the turbulence that hit the sector last spring. Uh, joining us today, East West Bank CFO Chris Niles is with us. Chris, you guys have a really interesting lens given your exposure to both the U.S. and the China markets. And I guess the obvious question is whether China uncertainty is impacting things like loan growth. Carl, thank you, and good morning. Uh, as, we, as you know, we are an American bank, and so the reality is 96% of our business is driven by the American market. And so we've been very pleased to see the reception of up over 5% this week of our earnings week uh, to our results, and are very focused on continuing to drive that cross-border activity that makes us a unique player in the market. So that's not made its way into, say, the Chinese-American community here? No, our Chinese American community here has proven remarkably resilient, remarkably loyal, and is supporting the growth and activity that happens cross border between the two countries. And we play a unique role in that. But the reality is the strength of that community here domestically, and despite the challenges perhaps uh, abroad, the growth trends are still positive in both and continue to drive our business forward. But a lot of the analysts did note the softer loan growth guidance and, and wondering what that's about and whether you're seeing credit concerns. Now, the softer loan growth guidance really is about the outlook here in the United States. And so our loan book is 96% in the United States. And a portion of our loans is here in U.S. commercial real estate. And as we look at the current environment, we're not seeing the level of transactions happening that would support strong growth in commercial real estate over the next couple of quarters. In fact, we think that business will slow further. And since that's historically been part of our growth, when you slow that down, our growth will naturally slow. We're going to keep pace with the economy on commercial and industrial lending, and we're going to continue to outpace on residential lending. And we've grown that book very nicely here over the last several quarters, and we'll be a growth bank. We just won't be growing commercial real estate the way we have in the past in this environment. How long do you think it's going to take for that to inflect back higher? Is it going to be about time or uh, the absolute level of rates or transaction volume or something else? It's a meeting of expectations on the part of sellers and their cap rates and the financing levels where new deals can be put on. So that probably has to be when the Fed works its way down a few, maybe 100, 150 basis points. Uh, until we get to a better place where transactions can happen again, where people aren't underwater and they're comfortable moving property again. Chris, you have heavy exposure in California, and, I, and I'm curious what you're seeing in that economy. And also, if there's any fallout still from the Silicon Valley bank collapse, whether it, it led to anything different for you in terms of market share or different expectations among depositors. Yeah, it led to a number of things. East-West emerged from this stronger than ever. We're the largest state chartered bank in California. We have seen a number of our competitors disappear, literally, and we've seen a number of them be acquired. And so the reality is the market share landscape has shifted to our favor over this past year, which is part of the reason why we added net new customer accounts and we grew to record levels of deposits and loans 
driving record revenues, record net income, and allowing us to increase the dividend by 15%. Finally, Sarah mentioned uh, we're going to be lapping the anniversary of uh, the regional bank crisis in a few months. Are you at this point sort of satisfied with the level of regulation, supervision, uh, those looking over your shoulder in the business? Yeah, I think we have grown our bank, and as we have grown in complexity, we've had an increasingly strong dialogue with our primary regulators. We have a great relationship with them. The reality is the regulatory environment changes for all banks relatively at the same time. We have kept pace with those changes. We have a good capital base as one of the strongest capitalized banks in the industry to work with our regulators on whatever changes come. And our ultimate goal is to deliver strong returns to our shareholders in any environment, including any regulatory environment. And if you start from a position of strength, which we are, and with a strong capital base, you're prepared to take on any challenges as they come. Chris, really appreciate it. Uh, such an important uh, element of uh, the economy and the markets for sure. Uh, Chris Niles over at East West Bank. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. We are getting ready for a big week ahead. We've got the Fed, a jobs report at the end of the week. Of course, big earnings from Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Qualcomm, and the oil giants. We get the Jolts report as well, job openings. Some productivity in I there, like. yes. And we're going into it with this idea that the Fed is really getting the soft landing. What will they say about it? Will they declare victory? What will they say about cuts and how soon they may come, given these benign inflation reports that we've been getting? Right, next week's going to be fascinating. Everybody have a good weekend. Let's get to the Post 9 and the Judge. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.